2: On today's show, food world superstar, Carla Lolly music She discusses parenting in the pandemic.
3: And you use the term parenting, which I would say is like a very loose relationship that I have. <laughs> the relationship I'm in with my children right now, I don't know if I would call it parenting. Like we live together, you know what I
2: mean? Developing recipes for her James Beard winning cookbook.
3: I think that we have an abnormal attachment to constantly finding a new recipe to make. And actually, I think it's really okay if there's a dish that you like, that flavors you enjoy, make it over and over and over again. There is nothing wrong with that. And you get better and better at cooking.
2: And her thoughts on the undoing of the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, a job that Lolly Music resigned from in August following the departure of a number of her co-workers after their negotiations for more equitable pay were ignored.
3: In a way, even with everything that was lost and how painful it was, I think it was the right thing to have happen and I'm grateful that it happened in a lot of ways. And I'm trying to be better as a result. Cause like I know there's there were many episodes where I was shitty. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. <laughs>
2: Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross-Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross-Katz, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Matt, how are you?
1: I'm good. I feel like that question has so much weight already in 2021, you know? I like, know. we ask it every time, and I'm just like, I'm okay. Um, yeah, it's it, it's been a, a difficult week for me. I lost a friend last weekend, but beyond that it's been like the community side of it's been great and getting to connect with people I haven't seen in a while. And like, you know, we're just, we're moving through 2021. I'm sure it'll get better. Fingers crossed.
2: (laughs) We are moving through my condolences and, and, and quite a few major losses this week. Um, we lost Sophie. We lost Cloris Leachman. We lost the great Cicely Tyson. We lost Larry, I was going to say Larry Kramer. Larry King. We've also (laughs) lost Larry Kramer. Um, Many, many losses. Um, I want to do a little bit of a pivot today from our usual up top answer because we have a guest with us today. So I quickly want to just set this up because I know a lot of listeners are not sort of familiar with the Real Housewives um, franchise and even my great interest in it. But I wanted today to talk about the current situation happening with the Real Housewives of Orange County. And there's a viral tweet that went around that I just tweeted as I do saying that they should cancel the real housewives of orange County. Cause I'm bored. I'm in quarantine. And Meghan McCain responded saying that she agreed. And then Andy Cohen jumped in and said that they would be rebooting the franchise. But I wanted to contextualize why someone like me feels The Real Housewives of Orange County should be canceled. And this has been a call that many people have been shouting since the beginning of the season that just wrapped season 15. And it's primarily due to one of the cast members um, at the center of the show, Kelly Dodd, um, who's been with the show for, I believe, like five or six seasons now. Came in as a firecracker, but like the kind of firecracker that the Housewives franchise tends to enjoy and then kind of soured within the fandom, particularly over the last year. She is prone to speaking glibly. Um, Some things that she has done, that's a diplomatic answer. Uh, Some things that she has done, she has mocked the Black Lives Matter movement. She has spread disinformation about COVID and mask wearing. At one point, she said that COVID was, quote, God's way of thinning the herd, In part two of the Real Housewives of Orange County reunion, she claimed that she is black and experiences racism. Um, It should be noted she is not black. Um, And that brings us to our guest today, um, who is uniquely connected to Kelly Dodd. Um, Kelly Dodd is her stepmother. I believe um, she is the great and wonderful Veronica Leventhal. Before I bring her in, I do just want to read a quote of hers, which was sort of how I found Veronica. And she went on her Instagram stories and posted this. She said, "quote I don't think it's okay for people who say that they've experienced racism and prejudice to then turn around and inflict that same bigotry on other people." She said, "quote I don't think you can experience the privileges of whiteness and then turn around and deny that those privileges exist." End quote. Um, so, Veronica, hi. How are you? Hi. <laughs> I'm,
4: I'm okay.
2: <laughs> Is it weird to have something that you said quoted back to you?
4: Yeah, that's never happened before.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me start by asking... In this this video that you recorded on Instagram, which got passed over onto Twitter and then got picked up, I just saw it's on page six, et cetera. Were you anticipating that your words would reverberate outside of your Instagram stories, which we should mention your Instagram is private?
4: Uh, no, I did not think that at all. And also like, i want to be clear i wasn't just talking about one single person like what i was saying i think encompass a lot of what people are going through right now i think a lot of people are feeling really defensive when they are called out on something that they say that other people interpret as being racist and that defensiveness is not productive in fostering you know some sense of like understanding of us as a people and I, like in the last nine months, I have been called out a few times on things that people have heard me say that they have said are not cool and either bigoted or prejudiced or what have you. And I feel like my response is, oh, no, wh- why did I do that? What, what's going on in my brain that made me say that thing? And that kind of is the response that I would love to see for, for all people.
2: Let me ask you. Prior to Kelly Dodd joining your family, uh, were you familiar with The Real Housewives? Were you a watcher of the show?
4: Oh, my God. I'm a huge Bravo fan. Giant. I wow. watched most of the shows except for the ones that have to do with houses because I couldn't care less.
2: <laughs> so boring. So the, so you were familiar with The Real Housewives of Orange County?
4: Yeah, Very, yes.
2: Okay. So then I have to imagine you were very familiar with Kelly Dodd prior to her literally joining your family.
4: Oh, I'm a huge Kelly Dodd fan. And so,
2: tell you this, when your father, who is Rick Leventhal,
4: first of all, you've
2: grown up with a famous parent. You've grown up with the idea of you have, yeah. (laughs) um but no you've grown up with a parent who has opinions that are put on television regularly that people are either going to agree with or disagree with and so I imagine you and correct me if I'm wrong I imagine you've had to deal with people confronting you about your father's beliefs
4: well for a very long time I um didn't tell anyone who my dad was um like people would ask me like what does your dad do and I would just say like oh he's he works in journalism or something, you know, like something very, it didn't get into the nitty gritty of where he works because I think I didn't, I didn't want to sort of like have that conversation with people because I felt like it was clear, like what I believe I have been this outspoken and this political since I was a teenager. This, the hardest thing I think about this, this last year or two has been that like, everyone knows now. And I have, to just be very like upfront and um and honest about it. Would you
2: my sense is that your political persuasion differs from your father's has that had did that prior to everything going on in the last two years did that take a toll on your personal relationship in terms of conflicting political beliefs?
4: Well, I can't and won't speak to like what my dad believes. What I feel is shown on the network that he works for often Mm. is different from what I believe or what I um, think is true. And I think that that I I recognize that like it has been an amazing place for him. Like he has that is the majority of his career. He spent, you know, over 20 years there. And they've been very good to him and they and he has done some really amazing things for that network. You know, he's been to Iraq and Afghanistan. He covered 9/11. He was like the first reporter on scene. You know, he's done some really incredible stuff. Um but I I admit that like when I do things like go to protests or or support um, certain political policies, it is directly against what that network likes. Mm-hmm. And so that is very, it can be difficult.
2: So tell me what your original reaction to, was to finding out that your father was dating Kelly. And I think it's worth noting that the Kelly dot at that time was probably she's always been a bit of a firecracker, especially in terms of dividing the fandom. But at that time, for those that didn't like Kelly, it was probably more within the world of the show and feeling like kind of like as we as Bravo heads, you and I, you know, you kind of, you form like the I like this one. I like this one. I don't like this one. But again, it's more about how they exist within the world of Housewives and less who they are as people.
4: Yeah, well, they met, I was there when they met. Um like she was staying at Ramona's summer house and um, they came to my dad's party because a friend of Ramona's was there and um, he was throwing like a pool party. It was so casual. It was like, you know, (laughs) beers and cans and everyone was playing like um, stupid pool games, but they came and I was, you know, I was absolutely going out of my mind. I was so excited. I mean, the Titans, Bravo Titans were coming to my home. It was incredible um and yeah it was it was very exciting (laughs) I
2: I imagine the beginning you were probably like oh my god my dad's dating Kelly Daw like you know you mentioned in the beginning sometimes you would kind of not share what your dad did for a living but did things change at all in terms of maybe even just within your own circle of just being like can you believe this like my worlds are literally colliding
4: oh people um started texting me like you know coworkers or just acquaintances and they were like wait, your last name is Leventhal. So is that your dad who's dating Kelly Dodd? And like, you know, then I was like, yes. Um, And I think also a lot of people made assumptions of like, oh, I didn't know you were rich. I was like, (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) I am not rich. (laughs) Um, But then like, yeah, no, it was It was a big deal. I mean, I was able to bring like very close friends to watch what happens live. Like it's very, the opportunity was incredible. Like Mm. just so cool to be a part of the Bravo culture. And I've met so many amazing people through it. Like, you know, all these like other major Bravo fans and we can just like get down and talk about it at length. And it's so fun. (laughs) There are very great aspects of this.
2: And so what was your first impression in terms of meeting the Kelly Dodd that is off of the show? Was there a lot of um, difference between the Kelly that you knew from the viewer perspective and the Kelly that you were meeting IRL?
4: Um, she is very was very nice to me, very generous, very, like, um, uh, just warm. She's, like, a very warm person. And so I remember the first
2: real big backlash that she got um, happened towards the beginning of uh, COVID-19 in early 2020 when she made the comment on Instagram saying that she believed that COVID and she has since apologized for this. It is worth noting. Um, but she said that COVID was God's way of thinning the herd. I'm wondering if you had any reaction to that at the time.
4: Here's how I'll put it there are a lot of like throughout this entire year, there have been a lot of memes going around and a lot of conversation about, like, if you're a white person and you know certain things about, like, the realities of, of our society and culture, you need to talk to your white relatives and you need to tell them, like, here are the hard truths and and try and encourage them to understand um, poverty and race and all of these concepts as, as best you can. And that's your responsibility as a white person. I feel as though I have been, I have had conservative family members for 20 years and I have been doing that for 20 years with varying levels of success. And so when these things happen, of course, I feel pressure to um, share what I think my opinion is and to share what I think is right. But I don't think that, sometimes there are also times when for my like well-being and for my personal like emotional health i have to pull back and i have to just be like okay no
2: What have been, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, some of the conversations that the two of you have had in the ensuing months? And I imagine there's a difference between having a disagreement that stays within the family, but now, you know, you're starting to experience seeing headlines popping up about you and on platforms like Page Six and beginning to weave a narrative of, you know, uh, family disarray, essentially, which I. I don't even know you well, but I know that that was not your goal at all. And that, and that does not even come across as, as within the intent of any of your words. And as you mentioned earlier, quite smartly, these words were not directed at a single person. These words were directed at, you know, people that need to hear these words. Um, I think that was a pointed statement. Um, but can you sort of illuminate what has gone on privately, um, now that you've made these feelings public?
4: I think that when, if I'm, if I'm going to talk about conversations that I've had with people, like obviously my perspective and their perspective are going to be different. And I don't want to say anything that is like completely off base, but I will say that like, I have, I have a master's degree in social work. I have been talking about race and ethnicity and all this stuff for a very long time. And so of course I have tried to, say those, say what I know to the people who are closest to me. And I've tried to, you know, like educate, illuminate, whatever, explain anything. And, um, I have tried. I feel that. Did you watch the Real Housewives of Orange County reunion this year? I watched part two because my sister really wanted to, and she doesn't have cable and I have like a some way of watching it. I don't know. My fiance set up our TV, and so we we watched part two.
2: I'm wondering if you had any reaction to it in the sense that one thing that Bronwyn said, and she didn't say a lot of things that I thought were um, worth repeating, but one thing that she did say was that, and this is really true, that the reunion as a construct. OCSI, just the reunion as it exists is a great opportunity to correct the record, to look at experiences from months ago and say, and with the perspective of having seen the footage, right? Um, and being able to say, you know what, I don't like the way I said XYZ thing, or I regret that or simply I'm sorry. And I think one thing that a lot of the viewers took away from watching the reunion was just a lack of remorse, a doubling down um, and in some senses making things worse. Did you have any reaction to seeing the reunion, especially in knowing the fact that a lot of the season that we were seeing were was quotes that were from months and months ago. And like this pandemic, it, it happens in waves and right. And there's a world in which at the beginning of the pandemic, the the magnitude of things might not have felt the same to everyone. And so it was easier I'm not justifying um, the quotes about from earlier, but just we didn't know where things were going. Whereas now it be, it's clear. We you know we have a, a death count, for instance, that's nearing um, half a million. Jesus. Um, I wonder if you have any reaction to to the reunion at all.
4: When when somebody says something and it's like it it is something that other people want to cancel. I feel like there's a a very clear, easy process of like taking that in and changing yourself. Like first, you need to have the ability to self-reflect and Mm -hmm. to be like, okay, like where, where is this coming from? What is that about? And then you have to try and talk to people in that community to get their sense of things and to get their understanding of what you did. Then you have to make amends, whether that's like reparations or apologizing or whatever. And none of that happened, I feel like, for anyone in that cast no one seemingly spoke to like people who have grown up who couldn't um code switch who couldn't be white or black who couldn't you know go between two worlds like uh even Bronwyn like people really needed to sort of be like okay like maybe I grew up in this area and I you know didn't get the opportunity to speak two languages at home so like talk to someone who did And then like hear what that experience was like, and then maybe that'll change your perspective or your behavior.
2: Let me wrap up our time by kind of asking about this because I think that the situation you're in obviously is unique for a lot of reasons, but is not atypical in the sense that I think a lot of people are dealing with living in households in which parents, siblings, someone connected to them has political beliefs and oftentimes not even political beliefs, cultural beliefs, or just, you know, just beliefs, period, that are do not align with their own. And at the end of the day, this is your father and this is your stepmother. Um, like it or or not, and I'm not saying that you feel one way or the other about it. I'm just saying this is the reality. You're going to be around this person for a long time. What sort of, whether it be advice or even practices that you are kind of exploring that help you to sort of remedy this these two concepts of I don't agree with this person and they are my family.
4: Boundaries are very important. Um, that is what I have learned. I think, uh, um, being aware when the fight is, um, is not worth your mental health or theirs and taking a step back and just being like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to engage in this. And uh, I actually just started a support group for people who have conservative parents or who have parents with like different political beliefs. And um, we're talking about a lot of like, a lot of concepts in that, like, you know, where did that come from? and, And why do they believe that? And I do think that a lack of diversity or a lack of diversity of understanding of different people's experiences has a lot to do with it. But also our takeaway is like when to step up and when to step back.
2: Let me ask you, do you think that moving forward, I know Kelly has said that she is not interested in returning to the show. If Bronwyn uh, continues on, Um, do you think that it's good for your family to have your family, both Kelly and your father and by proxy, all of you involved with this show, or do you think it might be healing to sort of remove the proximity of the show to your lives
4: i think they should have whatever they want if they want to if they want to be on the show and if they want to keep going then that's what they should do because i'm not on the show i you know i clearly didn't sign a release and i made that decision for myself but i would never want to take away something that makes them happy
2: well said uh let me wrap by asking you this i i kind of, i kind of want to give people an action item here I don't know necessarily if you're looking for people to follow you because I got the sense that, you know, your Instagram is private for a reason. What do you want people that are interested in this conversation and that want to know more, whether it be about you or or this very conversation is resonating for them? Where do you want to direct them?
4: I mean, if people want, they can follow me. I accept most of it. I just do that. It's private for work. I don't because I want my clients to follow me. Um, But I, what I really want is anyone in New York City. I know Barbara Kay is running. I love Barbara, but they need to look up Diane Morales for NYC. She is a progressive, incredible candidate. She could change this city. And I, that is what I want people to do. Look her up and give her money.
2: Yes, that's wonderful. And I just want to add, I do not support Barbara Cabavit, who was a friend of on the Real Housewives of New York running for mayor. She, if you go on her website and look at her platform, she is not for defunding the police. She is actually for putting more police officers on the street as a remedy to. The crime happening in the city, it, it makes very little sense. I just implore anyone who thinks it's really fun to have a housewife vying for mayor. I get it, it's fun too, but look at the platform. She is not aligned, well, with my beliefs. Maybe, I don't know, you have your, whoever, you know, just look up anyone that you think is cool, even if they have name recognition. Uh, it matters not the name, it matters the policy. Um, Veronica, thank you so much for your time. Just because I know there are people interested, what is your Instagram handle?
4: It's not underscore Topanga.
2: (laughs) And is that a Boy Meets World reference?
4: Yeah, people have told me my whole life that I look like Topanga, so. I see it. I
2: see it. (laughs) I see it, yeah. Um, Well, I want to thank you so much. I thank you so much for your honesty, and uh, I think that the great thing from all of this is that you are going to instigate conversations happening that have little to do with housewives or your family and more to do with the ways in which people see themselves within your current situation, we'll call it, if that's okay. Conundrum, I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, Veronica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. (laughs) And without any further ado, we are going to do a little bit of a 180 and turn it over to today's guest, the wonderful Carla Lali Music. Let's do it. She is a chef, cookbook author, and YouTube personality. She began her professional life as a line chef and later kitchen manager for Rocco Dispirito and was the first general manager of Shake Shack, which we will get into. But she is perhaps best known as the former food editor-at-large at Bon Appetit. And most recently, she has launched a YouTube channel for her brand new cooking show, as well as a Patreon, where she is creating cooking videos, recipes, newsletters, bad puns, and good times. Those are her words. She is also the recipient of the 2020 James Beard Foundation Book Award for her you cookbook Where Cooking Begins, Uncomplicated Recipes to Make You a Great Cook. She is currently at work on her second cookbook, which we will also surely discuss. Her former video series, Back to Back, is how I first discovered her and featured her teaching a range of celebrities how to cook while they stood, you know, back to back in the Bon Appetit Test kitchen. Some of my favorite guests included Natalie Portman, Elizabeth Olsen, and Shangela Laquifa Wadley. She is one of the food world's biggest stars. She is as funny as she is talented, self-deprecating, and affectionate, and just so damn lovable. She is an icon. She is a legend. And she is the moment. She is the great Carla Lolly music. Carla, hi.
3: That's too much. I can't take it.
2: (laughs) I have been waiting for this day for so very long, and I'm just so glad that we've come to it. How are you?
3: I'm great. Thank you. I've been waiting as well and uh, just have had to like enjoy our Twitter relationship in the meantime.
2: It's very meaningful. And I'm glad that this feels like the next evolution of that. So I'm glad we got to this place. Now, I want to start off by asking, you are a working mother who has had to Mm -hmm. deal with parenting your two kids during a global pandemic while also managing work and with the unique caveat of your kitchen being your workstation. So now, nearly a year into this, how are you handling all of it? Have you maintained a work-life balance? Oh,
3: God, no, definitely not. Uh, uh-uh. and, and you use the term parenting, which I would say is like a very loose relationship that I have. <laughs> the relationship I'm in with my children right now, I don't know if I would call it parenting. L- like we live together, you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
0: and it was that. really
3: weird at the beginning realizing like just dumb stuff like, Oh, I used to leave for 10 hours. You used to leave for 10 hours. Like everybody had a separate life with their own friend groups and like, you know, all kinds of other stimuli and um, all of that was gone. We all lost that, you know?
2: And it's crazy now because we're coming up on the one year mark. And so what used to feel so foreign, this now is starting to feel like some set, not normal is not the word, but there's just an understanding of this being life as we know it, that is both like... No, I was gonna say it's both comforting and alarming, but it's just alarming. It's not comforting.
3: Yeah, that was a weird (laughs) moment realizing like, oh, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel weird anymore. This is normal and that's weird. And that's
2: right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back to your early life. Can you remember your earliest food memory? Oh, wow. I don't know
3: if I can remember my earliest. My earliest memory is much, much earlier than my earliest food memory. I think one of my, like, most distinctive kind of flavor memories is being um, home from school sick and, like, with a cold or something and having my mom bring me buttered toast. Like, we're a very enthusiastic butter family and thick piece of toast with, like, a lot of butter where it sinks in. That just being one of my, I think, most, like, powerful food memories and still such a big comfort food Mm. yeah
2: and when you first started getting in the kitchen and and cooking what was like do you remember your earliest memory of going into the kitchen and putting something together even before you were necessarily creating recipes but even as something as simple as toast do you have that that early memory
3: I think um it really happened in college because my mom is an excellent cook and, and a food writer and a cookbook writer also and a journalist. And so she was really the one who prepared all of our meals. And I didn't have that thing with her where I cooked shoulder to shoulder with her. Like she cooked, we sat down and we ate together. And it wasn't until I got to college and realized that I like I knew from good food and the food <laughs> at college was not good. And I realized, like, I had to figure out if I was going to eat as well as what seemed normal to me, I had to cook for myself.
2: Absolutely. And
3: so the recipes that I made that year, like, in my off-campus apartment were a lot of pastas. I learned, like, cooked kind of learned how to make carbonara, learned how to make pasta fagioli, learned how to make carbonara, pasta fagioli, and alfredo. And we ate that a lot.
2: I want to learn more about your time at Shake Shack. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned, you were the first general manager of the first Shake Shack location. And for people that don't remember, because Shake Shack is so ubiquitous now, there was a time when I first moved to New York, even when there was that one location and people would wait in line for hours. It was a rite of passage. It just, there was a specialness about Shake Shack that I'm not saying it doesn't have anymore, but just, you know, when something grows larger, it loses the luster of just being, you know, singular. Can you tell me about your time there? And in particular, you're in, involvement with the shack burger because I was reading an interview that you did not too long ago and it sounded like you helped create the shack burger but you did not take full credit but I want to know like <laughs> are you behind the shack burger so no I'm not so
3: let's just clear that up I didn't invent it the season that I came onto the shake shack and was the first GM that was actually the second calendar year that it was open so the very first year that it opened it opened for like three months and Carrie Heffernan and my old boss in, in kind of did this road trip. Um, Richard Corain and Danny Meyer had a lot to do with the shack burger and what type of burger was going to be that it was a griddled burger, not like a big giant burger. And they did a road trip and kind of came up with that. So it was really Carrie, the chef who invented the shack burger, but (laughs) this year that I came on to be the general manager of the shack was like the first full season. And it had that kind of had had an iconic sort of opening the year before there were no written recipes. There were no systems. There was no training materials. Nothing was codified really. And so I was a big part of in that ramping up of like doubling, tripling, quadrupling, whatever the business of figuring some of that stuff out. Cause it basically was like, there was one guy who, who had been there the season before, who worked six days a week. And if he wasn't there, it was like, I don't know if they're going to be the same, you know, and you just can't do that when you're in a fast, casual, multi-unit concept. Like every burger has to be the same, no matter who's making them.
2: Right. When was the last time that you had a Shack burger?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, there's like people who are burger people and they eat burgers all the time. Like I wasn't one of those people. But I took a bite of a shack burger like every day that I worked there um, <laughs> to make sure that they were like right. The last time I had a shack burger was probably a couple of years ago. If I go to the shack, I'm more likely to get the chicken shack. And but my real go-to is like cheese fries with sport peppers. Like if I could order one thing off the menu, I would I would get cheese fries with a side of the sport peppers that go on the Chicago dog.
2: I'm curious. So since your time having left there, Shake Shack has kind of become this. Not that it wasn't big when you were there, but it's grown bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh yeah. Do you ever feel like Shake Shack as a brand is becoming too overextended and should perhaps focus on their core competency? Or do you think that expanding is, is, is doing the business good?
3: There's two sides to it, right? Because the more shacks that open, the more people are employed. I thought about this a lot when I was there. The business relationships that we set up at the beginning with some of the vendors, but with also some of the people that you get to hire when you have a business like that is really transformative. Like Pat LaFreda was a butcher that was a purveyor for a lot of restaurants in the city. But when they set up that relationship with the shack at the beginning, that. Like, we employed, they were able to employ people to shape the patties that we needed for the shack. And I thought about that a lot when it happened. Like, they're going to hire two people because that's how many patties need to be shaped for us and like the ripple effect of that. So, in the sense that like they're a good employer who create a lot of jobs and opportunity for all of the people who work there and the vendors, that's awesome. Is it a different experience when you go into a shack than it was? When we were just had the one in Madison Square Park, like, yeah, totally. But if they do it well, I think that's great, you know, and it's very different from like a kind of other. Now they're publicly traded. That was one. <laughs> okay. This is a segue. Can we segue? Please. So um, I was gone from the shack for a few years when they had their IPO. And the weekend that it was, Announced in the news that they were going to go public. I actually that weekend was staying with my parents, and my dad covered personal finance as a journalist for a long time, like his beat. And I remember waking up that morning and kind of checking the news headlines, and I saw like Shake Shack going public. And I was like, Of course they are, you know, great, cool, (laughs) like people that I hired as interns are still like are like regional managers now and like <laughs> i'm so happy for them and i <laughs> came downstairs was like having my breakfast my dad came up to me and he's like carla did you see the <laughs> you know, shake Shack is gonna go public i was like yeah dad i saw he was like no, you don't understand like <laughs> they're gonna go public if you had to, if you were still there now that you i was like i get i get yeah, it yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> I was like, it's okay. I'm sure another opportunity like that will, <laughs> will definitely come along for me. <laughs> <laughs> Never. It's like buying Apple stock in, you know, the 88
2: or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But hey, you oh, had yeah. a hand. You had a hand in the original, you know, you'll always have the memory of being a part of it from not the very beginning, but it sounds like you were there very early on, right? Very season two, on. right? Is it fair to say? Season yes. two. And we love a season two.
3: And I'm really proud, like, I'm very proud of the work that I did. That was very formative in ways that I couldn't measure at the time. Like the things that I was learning about management there, some of those lessons like didn't kick in until years later. I was, and, and they're really good people. So a lot of cows though, the cat, like there was a heaviness of the amount of cows.
2: I first discovered you, as I mentioned, through the Back to Back Chef series. Some of my favorite guests include, well, let me just say, guests included Natalie Portman, Troy Sivan, Trixie Mattel, Shangela, Elizabeth Olsen, Al Roker, Michael Shannon, Marlon Wayans, Padma Lakshmi, and more. I love that series so much because you are such, not only are you a wonderful teacher, you're incredibly generous to the guests because I noticed this theme where a guest likes to come in and feel like they are absolutely inept. And I feel like part of your job in those sessions was not only teaching them how to make said food, but empowering them with the confidence to make it. This is especially clear to me in the Natalie Portman episode, which is by far my favorite. It's a must watch. (laughs) By the way, I cannot believe you guys let her hammer that coconut. Like, I was so nervous.
3: All right. Give it a really good. You have to hit it harder than you think. Like, really whack it. Do you have it in half yet? No, not at all. Do you see like uh, a fault line? Are we doing both coconuts? No, you only need the one. Okay. But do you see a fault line opened up? No. Okay, so. Oh, yes. Okay, you see a crack. <laughs> okay, is it all silly. the way around or just in one? No, almost. Okay, so then could just rotate it again and hit it really hard ah, on I it. I did it. Nice. That's very exciting. Awesome.
2: But in that episode, it's, she was very trepidatious and nervous to be around an esteemed chef like you. And I felt like a lot of your work, in addition to teaching her how to cook the dish, was just to say no the goodness exists in you. You are capable. What was that experience like for you in having these random celebrities come in every week, but always with the through line that seemed to be like that they thought they could not cook? When
3: they told me that they booked Natalie Portman, I thought that everybody was just like, joking like that they were just getting one over they were punking me so they're like carla we booked natalie portman i was like oh yeah (laughs)
0: like
3: like, (laughs) not no and then they're like no seriously natalie portman and i was so nervous right Uh, so nervous she's a huge star like crazy celebrity not used to that at all and when she walked into the test kitchen she looked at me and said oh my god i am so nervous and i was like what are you nervous about? Like, <laughs> yes. for your perform, you're Natalie Portman. And then I realized, like, you know, it sort of clicks, like, oh, she can't cook. And, like, I'm not Natalie Portman, but, like, I can cook. And so there was this very, like, equalizing thing between us. And then, sort of, the genius of the show, I think, was that. That for the viewer, it's like uh, stars are just like us, you know. Yes, like yeah. the 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 viewer is then identifying with the celebrity because most of the people who watch like aren't professional chefs; they're fans, and and so then you're vicariously living Natalie Portman's truth, and it's just like great. But I also, it, it was really important to me. And if you go back and watch the Marlon Wayans one, that was the first one I ever did. Prior to that, it was the concept was different. The concept was a celebrity chef who would rotate with an ordinary human. So the first one they did was Gordon Ramsay, and it did like blockbusters. It's still, I think it has like 11 million views on it. And then they did Daniel Balud and they did, I think Bobby Flay and they just didn't do as well. And then the producers realized like, oh, that one performed because Gordon Ramsay is like an insane celebrity in his own right. So they flipped the concept and they were like, you'll be the constant and we'll get a celebrity because they always have something to promote. And we, c- it's much easier to find a celebrity who will perform than it is to find a celebrity chef. But at the beginning, they wanted me to act like Gordon. So my direction was to be the way he was, which was like, he was really riding this ordinary guy who couldn't cook in that first episode. It was crab cakes. It's hilarious. But the dynamic then was Gordon was the professional and that guy was like inept. And it's Gordon's personality to be a bully and all that stuff. So they really directed me to like have a time limit and like really be like riding way Marlin and like we have to go faster and all this stuff. And they edited out all the times that I laughed at his jokes and because that was supposed to be the, the drama of it was like I could do it and they couldn't and after and I was uncomfortable with the direction and I was really uncomfortable with the episode and the fans didn't like it either they like were like why is she being so mean to him and like he's so funny but this isn't funny and I sat down with with the person who was producing the videos and I said like this is so out of sync with the rest of the tone of what I do in all the other videos which is teaching people to cook and like I think success for this video is when we turn around and our dishes look the same instead of the way it was set up before was you would turn around and mine would be perfect. And that person's would be like a mess. I was like, I don't want that. Nobody wants to see me make a mess out of them. Right. Like people are going to watch this because they're fans of that person.
2: Right. I often found too, in those turnaround moments, oftentimes the things that the celebrity would think that they did the worst at would be the things that you would point out as saying that you liked the most, which we'll get to this in a bit, but I think this correlates to a lot of the ethos that's in your cookbook, which Mm -hmm. is this idea of we're not seeking perfection, we're seeking delight. Mm -hmm. But going back quickly to that, you know, you mentioned the Marlon Wayans one. In doing my research, yes, there was a lot of talk online that like Carla was not having fun with Marlon Wayans, which I now understand why. Why. of those videos you did, who was the most game and who struggled to have fun?
3: Oh, I mean, Shangela was game. She was <laughs> the probably least equipped hook with the most entertainment g- gung-ho. How's your batter? Is your batter
0: in your bag? Trust her, drag queen, honey. My <laughs> batter's been in my bag a long
3: time. <laughs> but I was having a, just a crappy day at work that day and was irritated about, I don't even remember what, but I just remember being like at the end of like irritation. And I came down to do that video and she walked in the room and I was just like, we're good. It was so fun. She was so great. Wait, what was your question again?
2: Who struggled (laughs) to have fun? I'm not saying who was bad. I just, you know, sometimes it's like, you kind of have to understand the conceit.
3: Well, Michael Shannon wasn't like having fun. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean he's not that's like fun is not in yeah. the adjectives yeah he really likes food though he was very cool but he wasn't like goofy like you know I was like I'm not getting goofy I'm not gonna get goofy energy from this person um in fact I might get like dead silence like I don't know what
0: yeah he and I really yeah. I, re-
3: I really have no idea what's going on because I can't I really can't see them and I'm not getting a. T- I I don't get any feedback from the producer is very hard for me to know what's going on especially if they're quiet
2: he has a very implicit intensity about him um were there ever any safety concerns because i watch as i mentioned the natalie one but there are several videos that i watch and i just get nervous i would get nervous for anyone but especially when dealing with a celebrity because you know celebrities are precious was that ever a concern
3: big time and actually that the, the one with natalie i was like what what have I done? Like, I, <laughs> it, it, like the coconut. There were hammers, yeah. screwdrivers, a mallet. She had the mandolin. We had the protective the mandolin. Gloves. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And I realized right in the middle of the video, like, if she gets hurt, what happens? You know what I mean? Like, should security detail? I was like, what have we done? That was very early vid- video for back to back for me, but. By the time we were maybe however many a dozen into it, I realized that that I needed to be a little bit scared for it to be fun for me. So we would try to make the level of difficulty appropriate for the person coming in. And sometimes yeah. we didn't. Because if they were a good cook and the recipe was too easy, like with Anthony, you know, it was like he can cook, I can cook. What are we doing? Yeah. Right. So it was just a little more fun when there was a technical differential. So sometimes the bar was high for me. Like I didn't know if I was going to like potato souffle. I was like, this might not work.
2: (laughs) So you first started at Bon Appetit in 2011 and were promoted to food director during your time there. I imagine one of the more challenging things about food is the amount of subjectivity involved. So like my background is is within fashion, right? And you can dispute whether a garment looks good, but you can't really dispute if something is well-made because you have the seams and the construction of the garment is visible. There's a, a technical element to it, which I know does exist in cooking, But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's just more subjectivity. How did you first develop your own perspective around what is, quote unquote, good food?
3: That's a really layered and complicated question because the enjoyment of food and taste and what you like is, at the end of the day, like purely subjective. So there are things that I don't care for that are still good food because it's not about my enjoyment. So that was one, one of the lessons as a food editor to realize that like my taste perception of something, my enjoyment was maybe irrelevant sometimes because there were other questions. Like if it was a chef's recipe that we were replicating, did we do a good job of representing this dish and turning it into a recipe that a person at home can make. That is how you measure success. There are some desserts that we published that like to my palate were like way too sweet and I would never eat them, Mm. you know, but that doesn't mean it's not good. So some of the, the kinds of questions that I was very preoccupied with for a very long time was, is this recipe makeable? Is it clear? Are the ingredients like gettable? Do you need equipment that most people don't have? And using those questions to kind of tailor the recipe, right? Because what we wanted at the end of the day was for people to cook the food. Right. So we knew like we could write a good headline or, and take a great picture of the food and like represent it in a way that was whatever. But if people didn't make it, then we had completely fallen on the service part of it. Right. So that was, that was just like reinforced c- kind of constantly.
2: Do you ever have moments, because I know, like, you know, I was just watching Drag Race this morning, and as soon as a girl turns the corner to come out, I immediately have a reaction to the look. I like it, I don't like it, and here's why. And I'm curious, with food, do you find that your opinion or your taste can be malleable in terms of, you might have a first bite of something or look at something and say, that's not for me, and then be either influenced by others' love or distaste for something and or, you know, maybe this needed an hour to cool or, you know, it was time of day. I mean, like how many variables can impact your your like or dislike of a food?
3: Yeah, a lot of them, especially when it's something that you haven't had before and need to also learn what that dish is. And if the representation of it that you've just been served is like a good one, that can be really Tricky. I don't have that many food aversions left, but a very long lasting one was around dill, the herb, which was weird because, like, I like dill pickles and I like cured salmon, but, like, if there's just a bunch of raw dill and something or like dill and chicken noodle soup, like, ruins it.
2: Really? <laughs> ruins. Huh.
3: But when Andy Baraghani, who's been a guest of yours, was working on a Persian New Year story where herbs are so integral to what that is all about, and there are so many of them, and dill is like huge, and he was really funny about it because he was like, "And you're not. This is going to be hard for you because like it's like so much dill." And I was like, "Nope, like <laughs> I'm here for it. Bring this it on. is like." this is part of this dish. It wouldn't be the dish without it. Like, let's do it. And through that, I ate a lot of things that I wouldn't have cooked for myself or, or hadn't been exposed to. And like, that was a really big part of my education. And I kind of, because of that got over, he was the kind of opening the door to like, it was so much dill. it was like an exposure therapy and dill.
2: Which I think is really good. I, th- I think that like for me, for instance, I grew up thinking I don't like spicy foods. And I realized I had put up that wall and never allowed myself to have spicy foods. And then once I started eating them, I realized I actually love spicy foods. And so I'm always curious about how much people's distaste of certain things is actually authentic or how much of it is just like learned through a single experience or through like their own assumptions about themselves.
3: Yeah. I've learned also from having kids that there's something about how many exposures you have to something and you can't expect to give somebody something like once or twice. And then they're like, Oh yeah, actually I do like, like 10 times, 20 times, 40, 50. So one of the ones I'm still not over is, um, chicken liver. Like I don't like it sauteed. I don't really like chicken liver mousse. If it's in pate, I'm not so down with it. And, but like people who I really love, really love chicken liver. (laughs) Like I know it's a good food and I keep trying, I just keep trying, but then, but usually when I have it, I'll be like, yep, nope. I still don't like that flavor. But part of working in food too, is like you eat things that you don't necessarily like, because that's part of the job. Totally. Right.
2: So You knew I was going to ask about it, so here it comes. In August, you took to social media to announce your departure from Bon Appetit. In your lengthy letters to your followers, you explained that the decision was in response to a June firestorm over at the magazine. If you are interested in the minutia of what went on, I implore you to exercise your right to Google. I was struck by your transparency and accountability in your post. You wrote, quote, I have been supported and rewarded for my work. My BIPOC co-hosts were not. There's no way I can go back to video amid all these failures. Then you say, this movement was started by my BIPOC co-workers, and it is thanks to them that lasting change may eventually come to Condé Nast. I am grateful for the opportunity to stand behind them, and I know those who decide to stay at BA will continue this fight internally. I am also thankful to my audience, who implored me to do the right thing. I am buoyed and inspired by my comrades. The risks they took made this happen. And as much as it hurts, this change is necessary and good. The employees run the show. The power is with the people." end quote. It's been nearly five months. I'm wondering if and how your perspective has grown or become more informed with all of this in hindsight. And by this, I do not mean white privilege in the workplace.
3: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing for me and the place about talking about BA where I feel most comfortable and have most ownership over is that There are things I wish I could go back and do differently. And I think once you've been through a hard experience like that with really hard learning, it's natural to like wish I could go back and do stuff over, but I can't. And so the only thing that I can do is try not to make those same mistakes again in the future. And it was, a humbling experience. I was, became very aware of things I had done that were very hurtful to people. I didn't want to back away from that. You know, it was tough stuff, but in a way, even with everything that was lost and how painful it was, I think it was the right thing to have happen. And I'm grateful that it happened, you know, in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. And I'm trying to be better as a result because like I know there's there were many episodes where I was shitty.
2: I'm interested in the fact that the entire conversation happened so publicly. Yeah. And I know that that had to add a level of intensity to this being how much everyone both fans of B.A. And just fans of watching people or institutions get taken down yeah. seem to have wanted seem to want to participate in this discourse. I found that the story got much bigger than BA and got much bigger than even just the food industry. And the conversations, much of which were about white privilege in the workplace, extend well beyond the food space. What was it like for you in realizing that? In that moment, we, and I say me and so many people I know, we were looking at all of your socials, waiting for the next story, the next statement, um, seeing what was going to come out and knowing that any words you said, whether apology or even acknowledgement, were going to be you know, embedded into news stories and we're going to add, I don't want to say fuel to the fire, but we're going to to deepen the conversation about this and extend this story's life.
3: Yeah, it was really hardcore. It was like a hardcore crash course in an education that like I didn't sign up for necessarily. And you you make a good point which is that it was happening really publicly and it was happening over social and in you know, journalism and like some journalism quote unquote journalism. Yeah. But it was also happening in the pandemic. So like none of us were together and everybody was behind their computer in their phones. And we were not able to actually go into the same room and look each other in the eyes. And, and I'm talking about the people who were on staff who were kind of reeling from all of this. We didn't have the ability to like actually have face-to-face conversations, which made it so much harder and, and, and really very distorted because I, like you was also learning what people were thinking by seeing what they were posting on social. So yeah, the whole thing was, um, disorienting and, and upsetting, but then the fact that it played out over social where most of the feedback we had all gotten for the BA channel for the work that we did and on our personal social media, our Instagram was like pretty positive, right? Like it was a kind of a feel good, like the, the fandom around that was very positive and supportive and like fun. And then it it's like <laughs> one day you're like, can't wait to look at your DMs. And the next day it's like napalm. So it was,
2: it was, it was hard. What did this teach you about your own white privilege on a macro level?
3: I think that part of this is like generational part of this is like my own family history. And part of this is just the era that I grew up in. Cause I'm older. Right. And I grew up in like Reagan era, you know, melting pot. Like everybody has the same opportunity. You just have to work hard, which is a messaging that in my own family history was very true. My great grandparents immigrated from Italy with very little, set up shop, had blue collar jobs. My parents did well starting from very little. And that's something that I believed is like, you just work hard and apply yourself and you can. And I really didn't question that. And this was, you know, part of what I felt like I was very ignorant about. I really didn't question that until a lot of the stuff happened with BA. And I think that, you know, realizing that I had been gone to schools that were majority white and i had been in workplaces with the exception of restaurants which is a very big exception there were also majority white and anyone who wasn't white i thought was like worked really hard to get there and we were all equal and like we're not you know and i didn't take a step back and think about that person's experience in a majority white workplace is completely totally different from mine even though i think i also had to work really hard and deserve to be here and like have to apply myself. And if I apply myself, I'll do well. I really thought that that was like true for anyone who found themselves in that workplace. And like, that also wasn't true. So again, like I'm glad that I know better and I wish I had had some of those experiences or at least expanded my own like perception a a lot sooner.
0: Mm.
2: I appreciate your willingness to be so introspective about it, but also I just think that the accountability that you took both in that statement and even in this conversation now, I think it's 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 really, it makes people understand this idea that what we don't know, once we know it, we can be better, we can do better with that knowledge. And I mean, I think I'm joined many people in in being hopeful about what will come next from VA and, and a new era and, and from that from all of this hopefully something good and wonderful can come about speaking of good and wonderful yeah tell me about you got snacked we've gotten yeah. i believe four <laughs> videos so far of you and your former bon appetit co-worker and friend molly baz what inspired you to do this series because one thing i'm enjoying about it so far is it gives you know i do miss the feel-good quality of those bon appetit videos i think a lot of people do and it gives us those of us who are can i use the word nostalgic i mean it's not that right. in the rear view but no, those am, of us, I'm nostalgic yeah. for it. Yeah. So, so how did that sort of come about for the two of you?
3: That was an idea that Molly and I came up with at kind of the, towards the beginning of quarantine. We were pitching ideas of stuff we could do at home. So that was like embedded in a bunch of other ideas that we had had. Um, kind of going back like February, March. And we just decided to like do it. We're like, we still really love this idea and think it would be fun. And let's just go for it. So we we did it and it has been really fun. It's fun.
2: Can you explain for people that have that don't that haven't seen a series yet what exactly the concept is?
3: So the idea is pretty simple. We send each other a mystery basket of groceries and then go live to instruct each other how to cook the thing that we had in mind for them. So we're making two different dishes simultaneously (laughs) in the moment. And I think the first one we didn't include a drink, but now they're pretty much always a drink and a snack and people love snacks
2: people love snacks. Of course. You also recently launched Carlos cooking show online. And I am so curious when I was like preparing my questions for today, this was something that really got me thinking, what are some of the type of things that you have to think about when self producing that you either didn't quite realize or wouldn't have realized had you not spent the time that you did at BA.
3: Yeah. I had no idea how (laughs) long the post-production process takes and the editing I had, I was like, does this take one day? Does it take two weeks? I have no idea. So the pre-production process, the run through, picking a recipe, shooting, like all of that stuff, I was very comfortable and confident, knew how long things took, knew what kinds of shots we needed to try to get. I mean, we're getting better at it. not saying just because I knew we did, did it perfectly, but what happens after total mystery. So that's been like a really big learning curve, which when you're self-producing is also a crash course in the economics of making your own content.
2: Mm. What have been some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned with these couple of months in terms of time saving or just, or little things that help you within your process, especially where, as we said earlier, your set is also, I was gonna say your set is doubling as your home, but rather your home is doubling as your set.
3: Yeah. That part is really fun. I really like, you know, when you do a video for a big brand, a food video, they want, there's a food stylist and they're going to give you brand new jars of like every ingredient that you call for in the recipe. And that always kind of even a little bit annoyed me at BA because like, that's not, that doesn't feel real. So one of the things that's really great about being at home is like, it is all my real stuff and I know where it is and how to get it. And like, if we get down to the bottom of the mustard bottle, like I'm going to show that. Right. But there are weird things about timing of like having to tell my husband and my kid, like, you can come home before we start shooting or you can come home after, but like, you can't come home in the middle because like what it does to me mentally and emotionally in the moment, like will derail the whole the whole ending of a video, maybe.
2: Totally, it's an artistic yeah. process. It is. I'm gonna throw to Matt now who has a question <laughs> for you. I okay. do. So one of my favorite
1: questions to ask about professionals outside TV and movies is when they see their profession within it. So as someone who is a professional cook and a cookbook author, do you ever encounter scripted fiction like TV and movies that want make you want to call bullshit on their cooking scenes because they're prepping wrong or they use the wrong technique, or they're just doing something that no one would ever do while cooking. Are there things that come to mind
3: I mean every time you see a cooking scene in a show it's usually so cringy <laughs> and like think about on friends like Monica was a what was she a caterer like that's such
1: a good question <laughs> that's a great question I yeah. love that <laughs>
3: <laughs> and when she would cook it was like moving fast but like there's nothing happening you know,
2: just also, bizarre. she was like the waitress in the earlier season, <laughs> yeah. then all of a sudden she's like head chef a few seasons later, and then she just stops having a job altogether. Very curious.
3: And then there's one part where she w- is working in a restaurant, but she's got like, I just in my mind, she's wearing one of those chef hats, like the mm-hmm. Chef Borardi that has the big, like, poofy <laughs> part on top. And there's kind of a swarthy maitre d who's like, this just so ridiculous. Yeah, that it's very rare that you see food represented in a movie that feels real, right? Maybe Kramer versus Kramer when he's like makes the breakfast,
0: like the saddest scene
3: ever filmed. (laughs) Yes, that feels real.
2: Yes. In your James Beard winning debut cookbook, Where Cooking Begins, you talk a lot about shopping first and deciding what to cook later, which is seemingly counterintuitive and thus has my immediate attention. Was this a realization through lived experience or where did that philosophy first come from?
3: I think that it really happened when I was developing the book. And the process of writing Where Cooking Begins taught me so much about like who I was as a cook and what lessons were really important to me. But when I started developing the book, I had ideas for dishes in my head. And then I would be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do that dish today. And I would either go to the grocery store to get the ingredients that I wanted, or I thought I had something at home and would realize that I didn't. So I remember one very clear memory of like, I wanted to make a celery root salad. I think that was actually for a party. And I remember going to the grocery store with the list and I was going to get celery root. And there was one like half wet, like brown spot, just nasty celery root. And I'm like, I'm not buying that, but like, what am I doing? And that was, you know, kind of one of those like moments of I'm going to be able to like shift on the fly because I'm a trained professional and I like know what other things can behave like that. But when I was working on the recipes for the book, I would realize I didn't have something and I'm too lazy to go to the store to get them. So I would kind of make it happen with what I had at home. And then I realized like, if I do this, this is how I cook all the time. Why wouldn't I create that same opportunity for the readers? And It's been really great. I call it spinets and, and where cooking begins. And it's part of the second book too, but readers really have gotten attached to this idea. And I think especially in quarantine cooking, it was really, really helpful because people didn't want to make an extra trip or some groceries were like weirdly shortages of certain ingredients and being able to kind of use what you already have at home became like more and more important.
2: Yeah, I want to add too, I feel like one of the things I took away from your book was, and I think I mentioned this briefly earlier, but this idea that To be able to excel at making food is not about being able to follow a recipe from start to finish. And I feel like one thing I love about your cookbook is it not only says that that's okay, it encourages this. And it sort of deconstructs this idea that, like, cooking is a step-by-step process and that to be good at it, you must check off the boxes as you go. And I think that, like... I really found like that your book, especially for someone like me, who's like novice, it sort of unlocks something in me that makes me say, well, I couldn't possibly do this well because I'm not good at it. But it also, what I took away from the book is there's no such thing as being good at it. There's just the learning process that, that continues to happen. And it's all about ingenuity and willingness to sort of say, okay, no good celery root. I'm going to pivot to something else.
3: Right. And I think learning also that repetition with cooking is so important to the learning process that you can make something once or twice. And I think that we have an abnormal attachment to constantly finding a new recipe to make. And Mm. actually I think it's really okay. If there's a dish that you like, that flavors you enjoy make it over and over and over again, there is nothing wrong with that. And you get better and better at cooking. So for me, things that are totally intuitive or very natural, um, and having been on video, I, I, I have to see myself do things. And I realize like, I have a certain way that I do these movements are just part of how my body moves, Mm. but I've been cooking for over 20 years. And so like, the more you cook, the more that feel and that, um, those reactions, like become yours, you know, and it's, it's great. But I think if you, if you go to the grocery store and you buy what looks good and is in season, or even if not in season, plentiful and in great shape or enticing in whatever way um, you can figure out what to make with it when you get home. But if you go looking for something specific that either isn't there or isn't in great shape, you've locked, you've kind of backed yourself into a corner.
2: Right. And I think for a yeah. lot of people, that's sort of like a paradigm shift that they have to go through in terms of their own understanding that if you see the thing that's on the list and it doesn't look good in the store, it's not going to taste good. Despite right. your, despite seemingly the fact that you did, you did it right. You got the thing on the list, but like the thing on the list doesn't exist. <laughs> you have developed this recipe for Cosmo's power pancakes, mm-hmm. which are seen as a very revolutionary. Revolutionary amongst food enthusiasts for developing a healthier pancake. Your son Cosmo loves pancakes. You say, quote, the way Garfield loves lasagna. So <laughs> tell me about developing this recipe, specifically about developing a recipe when the intention is to please someone that you love.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so many of my recipes are that, including <laughs> the ones I cook for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Like you deserve this. Don't tell anyone. Like my (laughs) single bowl of popcorn I had the other day, I was like, no one's home. They'll never know. (laughs) So my children have very different palates and Cosmo is a sweet, he just loves sweet stuff and always has been like that. So I think with feeding kids, it's just really important if they have an enjoyment of food, to nurture that and celebrate it and like not give your kids weird food hangups or have too much control around it because especially with a child who's like also has a very strong defiance streak, like that could get you down the wrong road. So if he likes pancakes and enjoys them, he should have them. Right. And so I started by thinking like, well, it's not like there's egg in it and there's some dairy, which is protein for kids. And like calories, like children need calories. Like all of those things are good things, but how can I just like really stack the deck in his favor and make this as nutritious as possible without it being not a pancake. And I just really don't believe in like the thing where you put pureed spinach and brownies, like, that's just not my way. Wait, that's of, a thing. A total thing. Oh my God. Like some, you know, cooking for kids stuff is like if your child won't eat vegetables, just like hide them in a cake. Like, well, then your kid is learning just to eat cake that tastes terribly. Of spinach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, why are you ruining cake now? Yeah. So with cause, it was like, what else can I put in here? So I just started like experimenting. So he liked oatmeal. So I threw oats in it. You know, chia has like a lot of complete protein. What would happen if we added flax to it? What would happen if I just like reduce the amount of sugar? Because he's going to basically swim it in maple syrup. So the pancake itself doesn't have to be that sweet. And it's like, we eat, I made them last weekend. He, uh, he was going snowboarding with my husband and I like made them power pancakes to take. And it works. I'm like he never know. Like I kept putting more and more like seeds and grains into it, and he didn't even notice.
2: <laughs> I was like, Great. What's the food that you love the way that Cosmo loves pancakes and Garfield loves lasagna? <laughs>
3: um, I did already mention it, but popcorn. Popcorn's I can eat, your- I just don't know at what point it replaced pasta as kind of like my comforting, most comforting, or whatever food. Um, But it did, and I even with popcorn, my thing is like it's a whole grain,
2: totally. Like, have as much as you want.
3: It's a kernel.
2: Do you think there's a gradient in terms of quality of popcorn? Because I went to the Catskills recently and I bought one of these like these really fancy popcorn, you know, from there, and, and I and I made it and it was delicious. But I also feel like. My Orville Redenbacher is also delicious. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a lot of gradient in terms of like quality popcorn?
3: I mean, I love all the I love them all, but like <laughs> you know, what? I will also get the Orville Redenbacher in the in the jar.
2: Yeah. Me I think too. it's
3: more about how you pop it and wh- what you season it with, because like I am not down with air popping. Mm. Just can't support it.
2: Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, you need. I think you need that fat both to like. Kind of coat the popcorn as it explodes like there's fat on it mm, but okay. also to make the seasoning stick like you need fat otherwise they're just going to bounce right off it's a basically like styrofoam okay so i if- i
2: have an air pop but i was going to air pop but now <laughs> never. never tell me this why is buying knives online bad
3: oh um buying knives online is not as good as buying them in person uh-huh. because the way a knife feels in your hand is really, really important. So the size of the knife relative to your hand, I have small hands, like a 10 or 11 inch slicing knife is going to be hard for me to hold, how it's balanced um, and uh, just how they feel. So it's hard right now. That's one of the hardest things. People ask me about knives all the time. And that's one of the hardest things to give people advice about right now, because it's harder to go in person and pick up a knife and do, do that whole experience. But I bought a knife online last night, actually.
2: <laughs> but see, this is the great thing about you, which is like, it's the ability to have advice, but also <laughs> deviate from your own advice out of necessity. Because that really is, that's how I think of you. It's like, it's this idea of there are no hard and fast rules. You know, you you have a mantra, but you're willing to deviate if, if the circumstance sort of allows for it.
3: Yeah, and failure is part of the process.
2: Absolutely. Share or Barbara
3: oh share
2: easy decision yeah yeah
3: no I've never identified that hardcore with Barbara but like share some of those live performances at the yeah just that that coincided with my MTV education
2: you love drag queens. I love drag queens. <laughs> what is it about you that makes you not only love drag queens, but feel so comfortable around them? I mean, there's just something you really, you've had several on your show, as we mentioned, and there's just something you really get the joy that is drag in a way that not all straight people do.
3: I don't, I don't know. And I have to credit Miss Cracker for being the first person who I ever did a video with in drag. And I was also really intimidated because my drag experience or awareness was kind of like through John Waters movies and Divine and like seeing Paris is Burning when it first came out. Like it was really not an up close and personal. And I was, again, I was nervous that, she was going to clown me for being a like white middle-aged lady and then it was so complete like we just had instant chemistry and a rapport and the way that she approached the whole thing and was so game and loves food and her family history and how she came to like enjoy cooking what it means to her and her dynamic like and I had never watched actually never watched Drag Race until that. So I started with her season.
0: Mm.
2: Have you kept watching Drag Race? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Good.
3: Yeah. And I'm I'm only one episode into this season and was also very confused. I was like, how did they make a season? I was like, is this an I, old I season? Too.
2: Yeah, I too very confused. <laughs> no, they shot it this summer, but um yeah, yeah, you gotta do it, you gotta do it, I guess.
3: I was like, this can't be new.
2: Yeah, this- and yet, <laughs> and yet. Favorite Sarah Michelle Geller performance.
3: It blank blank, full blank. blank. Don't <laughs> ha- know ex- nothing. Is that Have, Buffy?
2: That is Buffy. Have you okay. ever seen so okay? So we know Buffy. Have we seen Buffy? Never. Never okay. watched an episode. Okay. My homework for you. At some point, <laughs> I would yeah. love you to dive into the world of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, I, I I will if you could feud with any celebrity who would it be
3: oh my god
2: feud a with a celebrity
3: <laughs> um well this doesn't really count as a celebrity who's the guy who does like the four hour work week stuff I don't know like Tim Ferriss
1: uh Tim, Tim, uh Tim Ferriss yeah I think that's right
3: yeah you have a bone to pick with that guy
2: what is his, his philosophy is <laughs> what is what <laughs>
3: I think the first book was the four-hour work week that, like, if you changed your habits and your discipline around work, then you could get all the same amount of work done in four hours. And I just call bullshit on that. Mm. And then he had four-hour... He had a roast chicken. I don't know.
2: I have problems with him. Fair. Boozy Brown Sugar on Instagram wants me to ask you, are you afraid of staining the marble you just used to renovate your kitchen?
3: No. And, in (laughs) fact... I like when things get screwed up. So the first kind of lemon juice stain on the marble to me is like putting that first little scratch in a car. Like you have to just get, we just got to get past it.
0: Totally.
3: And I, I chose purposely to have materials in the kitchen that would weather in a cool way.
2: Two last questions. One, what are your thoughts around this massive amount of celebrities who have entered into this food space over the last couple of years to varying degrees of success? I obviously realize some of them come in with more of a background in food than others, but you know, I just am curious if it feels invasive at all, if it's kind of like the more the merrier. And Do you ever have any reaction when it's someone that clearly doesn't know what they're talking about?
3: I would love for all of them to cook with me. So (laughs) no problem.
2: How diplomatic. I
3: think food is like one of those things that everyone experiences several times a day. And so that's a very wonderful thing that can give you something in common with someone that you think you have nothing in common with. And great, you know, like, remember getting in a taxi back in the day?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: And you would talk to your driver and, like, you can, if you can turn that conversation to, like, their favorite thing to eat, like, you're going to be fast friends with that person. So, like, cool. Cook your heart out, everybody.
2: Last question, I want some practical and applicable career advice for aspiring food writers that lacks the pompousness or snootiness of some professionals dispensing career advice. Basically, Carla, tell me it on the real. What should someone that wants to enter into this world, what are some things that they should know or some tips that they can pick up?
3: Oh God, I would say it's like, it's kind of a nightmare. You know what I mean? But if you want to do it, right now is the greatest possible time to do it because these brands are not the end all be all right and the ability of people to self-publish to get your stuff out there to put it on instagram to get a patreon to do it on substack to self-tape i use my phone to make my show like This has become like very accessible. Getting jobs in that world is really, really, really hard, but doing it on your own is easier than it has ever been. So if you really love doing this thing, just like do it. And that is advice I gave to myself coming out of a big brand. I worked in a corporate environment for a really long time, have found myself this year, like I'm just doing this thing now. And kind of like you got snacked with Molly on IGTV or making Carlos' cooking show on Patreon. It's like, I want to do this. I really enjoy it. I think it's a good idea. Find that confidence and like, do it. And then you'll get better at it. Like even making the show, I'm talking about that with cooking, but even with making my show that I've only made six episodes, I look at the first one now and I'm like, oh man, we're so much better than that now. Right. And it's like, I really enjoy the process and I really enjoy the end product. If you have that for something where you really enjoy the process of doing it and you're proud of what you make at the end, then like, that's everything. Just keep doing that.
2: And I would say too, I mean, messing up is good. It's funny, it humanizes people. And I think one of the unique things, again, comparing food to fashion is I interview a lot of designers and they'll always say, you know, just start making clothes. And I hate that advice in the fashion space because it's really not that easy. When it comes to food though, it's like, put your camera up and start cooking. Like anyone can do it. And so I feel like it's a lot more It's a lot more practical the food space than the fashion space is in terms of the entry point, because it's as simple as go into your kitchen right now, take what's in your cabinets and start making something. Whereas with fashion, there's like an economic barrier Mm -hmm. that exists. And then also just like, well, well, how am I supposed to, how does, you know, thread this through this? I mean, what, like there's a lot, it's not so easy. So I think food has that very inviting quality. I want to thank you. I want to encourage people to check out your Patreon. I want to encourage people to check out your YouTube show. I want to encourage people to follow you on all of your socials. And I just want to say as like a longtime fan of yours, I think you are not only such a talented chef. I think that you have shifted something in my brain. And I imagine the brains of many to say that, There is a place for you in cooking. You are a good cook, whether you've ever cooked before, because goodness comes from the desire to do good, and from that, we will make something good. And that confidence, you know, I was just rereading the cookbook in preparation for today, and, and it feels so accessible. And that's one thing that I think prevents a lot of people from making dishes, is not ineptitude or inability, it's just fear. And I feel like you are so great at striking down that fear, recognizing it and turning it into confidence.
3: Thank you so much. That is, I mean, that's like the the best kind of feedback that I could get because I want people to cook, right? And like, don't cook like me, just cook with me and make your thing. Shut up, Evan. 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 Evan. Evan.
2: Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible.
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.